Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. An arsonist might refer to a structure fire as irresistible, majestic, impressive. However, a firefighter may refer to it as catastrophic, devastating, destructive. For the community of Welsh, Oklahoma, a fire is just the beginning of what is the most mind-baffling crime to ever cross its community. It's been 21 years, and they have nearly the same amount of answers that they had when the smoke cleared December 31st, 1999. A blaze that glowed in the early morning hours would unveil something that no one was prepared to handle. The Freemans had a tainted history with the Craig County Sheriff's Department, and when the call came through for a structure fire right there on the Freeman land, there was already animosity present when tires crackled over the gravel in the driveway. But no one was prepared for the level of animosity that would cause error after error being made during this investigation. The stories of what happened that night on December 30th, 1999 range from good old-fashioned revenge to mythical stories of drug deals gone bad to a master plan carried out by two teenage girls. Whatever the underlying cause of this tragedy, one thing is for sure. Two girls, Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible, have been missing since that night of the unknown. And the three men they think is responsible for this after 21 years are saying very little, as two are dead and the third claims to not know what happened to the girls. One mother has never stopped looking for her daughter. Lorraine Bible blames each and every investigator in this case for not looking for her child hard enough. Laura is not a Freeman, but the Freeman name caused Craig County Sheriff's Office to wipe their hands clean of this case the moment a body was found. She blames OSBI's investigator, Nieder, for not doing his job. She blames each of them for the fact that she still doesn't have her daughter. Drugs, murder, and serious corruption are all at the heart of this case. And it's all going to piss you off. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight's case is the first in the True Crime Librarian history as we have a case of two girls missing, and and it's a case uh, that's only partially solved. This case made a small splash in the headlines last month when the excavation began in an area that they believe the girls were buried in. The results of this have been kept in a secret lockbox, and until we know the results, Laureen and Jay Bible are still actively searching for their daughter. And they know... If they can find Laura, they will find Ashley. We are going to go back to the start and sift through this case ash by ash, just as the volunteers did when investigators 
failed to do so. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, corruption, and adult language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. It has been one hell of a month for the librarian and my family, and I want to thank you all for your condolences and well wishes. I have just a little bit of house cleaning to get through tonight before we get started. First, don't forget the May design of the month is still live over at the merch store. You can head over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and snag yourself a t-shirt to add to your ever-growing collection. You can also choose to donate to the show right there on the homepage. Purchasing of merchandise and donations go directly into the show to help provide you with the best produced episodes possible. If you'd like to help the show without a dime leaving your pocket, you can always leave a review or recommendation of the show right there on whatever platform you're listening on or on social media. Be sure to use the hashtag the true crime librarian. Second, this case is going to be the season finale for this show. This has been an incredibly fun and I'm so grateful for each and every download of the show. We've grown so much over season two and because of that I need to to go back and do some things behind the scenes and and all that that goes into producing it needs to be done and so i'm going to take about a four to six week break we will be back just in time for the one year anniversary of the true crime librarian podcast and i promise it's going to be one hell of a case finally it's time to spread some true crime nerd love this is going to be different in a way that we've ever done this, this case, this entire series of Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible and True Crime Nerd Love will go out to my most favorite true crime nerd, my father-in-law. He would push me to follow my dreams and I'm living it right here with this show and with all of you. So this one's for you, Dad. Enough of this. Let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. All right, guys, trying to figure out where to start with this case has been the biggest hurdle, but let me introduce you to the Freeman family because this 
is going to be the the like core of the entire case and investigation and that name that name holds magical powers that i didn't know could exist but as we get through this case you're going to see what just the tip of the iceberg of what it was like to be a freeman the the name also provides theory it provides motive it provides you know the shortcomings of the police there's there's just so much that goes on with the name Freeman. Danny and Kathy are the patriarch and matriarch of the family, and together they had Shane and Ashley. Danny Freeman was known around town for several things. The most notable was his growing of high-grade marijuana, and, and that was coupled with his temper. It was no secret that Kathy and the kids would bore the brunt of his anger issues. When Danny was younger, he accidentally shot himself in the head with a gun. This caused him to have his sinuses need to be reconstructed with wire and mesh. And, that, and most people say that it's after this accident is when Danny's temper got to be as bad as it was then. He also suffered from migraines, which made it very difficult for him to hold down a, a steady job. So instead, there's the theory that the marijuana he was growing on the back 40 acres um, of his land was how he made his money. There are people in Welsh, Oklahoma that says that they have bought weed from Danny, but I, like I said, th this, this case, you're going to see some wild shit, wild claims come out of this because everybody has an opinion on what happened because there's no evidence to tell us what the story really is. The other thing that Danny would do is he would kind of pick up odd jobs, you know, handyman jobs, welding, and he even went out and collected different flowers that he would sell to the local florist. But more times than not, Danny would be found in between jobs. In March of 1998, Shane, the couple's oldest son, began displaying behavioral issues, and it would also mark the start of his criminal record. Shane had sticky fingers. Let's just call it what it is. <laughs> if he saw it and he wanted it, he took it. And the whole town knew Shane and his problems with being a thief. And it was so frequent and, and became so common in the community that people would go, something's missing, and they go, there goes that Shane Freeman again. I mean, even if you just misplaced something and you thought it was stolen, Shane, Shane got the blame for it. <laughs> that poor kid. But I mean, he had done it so much that it that the town was just like, okay, because Shane, he, yes, he's a troublemaker and yes, he's taking things and yes, he's not, you know, being a productive member of society, but he was not committing violent offenses. And sometimes he would return the property after he was done using it. It gets a little crazy. Dwayne Vansell, his uncle, Danny's stepbrother, is the one that would finally bring the cops into Shane's life. When Dwayne and his family went out for the weekend to have a getaway, Shane broke into Dwayne's home. He took the keys to Dwayne's trunk, truck, and Shane went four-wheeling. He went mudding, whatever you want to call it. 
before he parked it back in Dwayne's driveway and put the keys back. So when Dwayne got home and he pulled into the driveway, there's his truck muddy, not clean as he left it. And he goes to get in it and the, the gas takes on E. He has no gas. Dwayne knew it was Shane. So what did he do? He decided it's time for Shane to actually face those consequences. And Dwayne went and picked Shane up from where he was staying, took him down to Craig County Sheriff's Department, and he filed a report. Shortly after Dwayne filed the report, Shane and his family were ordered to take part in family therapy sessions. This was in hopes to not only deal with what Shane was going through in this, this behavior of stealing, which if you want to, to break that down, because he would, he would do so in a nonviolent manner, sometimes he would return whatever it is he took. You could say that Shane was simply acting out. He was looking for attention. Um, and this was the only way he knew how because of what was going on at home with Danny. And the only attention he seemed to have got from his father was physical and emotionally abusive. So hopefully with this court-ordered therapy session, not only would Shane get some tools to help him get through what he was going through with the stealing and stuff, but there was a small glimpse of hope that Danny would get something to help him out with his anger issues. In the end, they went to all of the sessions they had to go to and never attended a session following the, the cutoff date of the court order. In August of 1998, a coach noticed Shane had some blood running down his legs from his gym shorts. He approached Shane and Shane told him that Danny had hit him approximately 30 times with a telephone cord and he also mixed in a couple punches and slaps. Shane did not return home from school this day for obvious reasons. That night, Danny was at Roscoe's convenience store. This is where Ashley was working part-time. And he ran into Craig County Sheriff De Deputy Messick, and he reported Shane as either missing or runaway. Well, Danny was informed. He's not missing. He's not a runaway. We didn't feel that it would be safe for him to return to your home um, as there's going to be an officer that'll come and talk to you about the incident. Shane, he moved in with his best friend, Justin, following this incident as it was determined for him to not go home at all. It's just not safe. September of 1998, an arrest warrant was issued for Danny. He was being charged with injury to a child, which is a felony charge. Danny felt like the DA was blowing this whole situation out of proportion because he simply was saying, I was correcting my son's behavior. And that may be so. I mean, we grew up, most of us did, in, an, in a time where you got your ass beat for things that you did that you knew you weren't supposed to do, right? But nowadays, it's against you know, it's against everything. Don't, don't hit your children because you'll end up on the news and in jail. Don't correct them in that manner. But this is excessive. I mean, most of the time, most children, if they received a spanking, it was done with a belt. 
But with this being this cord and he could whip it, it was almost like being hit with a bullwhip. And this caused serious injury to Shane's backside. And this, at this point, that's physical abuse. It's not redirection uh, of, of Shane. It's not doing him any good when it, this has gone completely and totally overboard. You get what I'm saying? So Danny was arrested. He was released on a $5,000 bond. That level of bond is equivalent to about $8,000 today. That's a lot of money to have to come up with. And for the Freemans, and Danny's not working, they rely on Kathy's income and the little money that Danny makes from odd jobs to survive on. $5,000 isn't just laying around the house or stuck away in some bank account for them. That, that, that's a couple months worth of income. But nevertheless, Kathy pulled it together and she got Danny out of jail and he was awaiting his trial. In October of 1998, Shane told investigators, quote, I was talking to someone I wasn't supposed to. He caught me and he tried to find a belt and he couldn't. So he got the telephone cord and used it, end quote. So the whole, this whole thing, this whole thing starts because Shane had done something that caused Danny to take away Shane's phone privileges. And Shane, he was being defiant, right? Because he's, this is just who he is right now in this period. He has to act out. So he was not having it. Well, Shane was working with Danny where, at, at a house of people that he knew and Shane caught in the garage a glimpse of a length of phone cord. So in his mind, he's like, oh, I can jerry-rig from the telephone pole into my bedroom and have my phone privileges back and my dad won't know about it, right? Daddy found out. And then he used the same phone cord. You jerry-rigged a line to your bedroom and spanked you with it. I don't agree with what Danny did, but I don't, but Shane's actions deserve some form of punishment, correct? We're all on the same board. Danny went extreme, very extreme, fell off the edge of extreme. He's down there in the dark abyss. That's how bad this was taken out of proportion. And so as Danny is claiming, you know, I was just redirecting my son, Shane is telling investigators as they're piling together the information they need in order to go to trial. On November 6th of 1998, Shane turned 17. And at this point, you can, at 17, in, I know you can in the state of Texas. I'm pretty sure it's the same way in the state of Oklahoma. You can file for emancipation. And... Since Shane was not allowed to go back home to the Freeman house and live because it was not safe for him, and he was living with Justin and Justin's mom, he's to the point where he's like, I'm almost grown and I could probably just move out on my own and do this on my own and show them, right? So that's the plan. He, you know, he, I want to be on my own. I want to do this myself. 
Well, November 26th of 1998, Shane did finally go to the Freeman home and he spent Thanksgiving with his close family and a little bit of their extended family. Unfortunately, this would be the last time that he would be able to sit down with his family and it was going to be the last time that any of them would see Shane alive. It's also around this time that Justin's mother had gone out and rented an apartment for Justin and Shane to share. So there was an out for Shane. He, you know, it sounds like to me at this point, Shane's tired of, you know, couch surfing. Uh, He feels like he's nothing but a burden because that's probably what's been drilled into his head from Danny and his angry outburst, right? So he's having this just, I don't want to be a burden on anybody. Just let me be on my own. Let me do my own thing. But with the fact that he was now in an apartment, he was going to share with his best friend, Justin, this, this looked, his future was looking brighter, right? Well, it didn't last long. On January 4th of 1999, Shane stole Justin's truck and went out to his grandma Celeste's house. What occurred out there at that time is unknown, and there for about 24 hours, Shane's whereabouts were questionable because he didn't return home to the apartment, and he wasn't seen around town. However, on January 5th, 1998, Shane was seen leaving his girlfriend's house, and he left around 5.30 that evening. However, he would show up at the basketball game that she was playing in that night before leaving at 1045. And this is in Afton. And I just want to put this out there that I will be posting pictures of this case when it goes live. And one of those pictures is going to be a tiny map. And on that tiny map, you're going to find Welsh, you're going to find Afton, and you're going to find a couple other little bitty towns. Welsh is one of those towns that if you're driving and you sneeze, you've missed the whole damn town, right? So for them, it's it's just rural area. They don't have much. A couple convenience stores, a church, you know, funeral home, very little to offer. So generally, people in Welsh went to Afton or they would go out to Veneta, Oklahoma, and do their shopping and, you know, running around stuff. So I'm going to show a little map of that so that you know kind of where everything is. On January 6, 1998, Shane was seen wearing a blue jacket, and this time he is driving his grandmother's truck. Later that evening, Shane does something a little, <laughs> a little funny. He had apparently at some point stolen one of those red emergency lights. You know, you've seen them in the movies where they pull it out and stick it on top of the hood of the car. Those little bubblegum lights. Shane gets his hands on one and he decides, I'm going to pull this girl over. So he pulls over Sabrina Shivers and he seems to display some very well endowed cop mannerisms and using the language during what I would call a very fake uh, traffic stop. (laughs) But this is Shane being Shane. He's not harming anybody by doing this, you know. He's just seeing how far he can get this girl to believe he's really a cop, 
And he tells her, you know, I've only been on the job for about two weeks. Well, that explains his very youthful appearance. The activity going on on the side of the road catches the eye of a passing police officer. He pulls over to see what's going on and Shane climbs into the truck and takes off and initiates a high-speed pursuit. Eventually, Shane does lose the officer. This now puts him as a fugitive on the run because he would have been detained for the high-speed pursuit, but they didn't catch him. On January 7th of 1998, Shane steals a Ford F-250 XL from Krebs. He has decided at this point he's leaving Pittsburgh County and he's going off to do his own. He did decide he needed to go and get some supplies, so he parked across the street from the Bible's residence and he stayed in his truck and slept overnight waiting for Jay and Laureen to leave and go to work. He had stayed at the Bible's house for a little while during this couch surfing thing going on with, you know, the charges of his dad and, and child abuse. And so he knows the Bible's home well. He kind of knows what they have. And he thinks it's a perfect place to go and pick up some supplies. So he sleeps in his truck and he was waiting for Jay and Loring to go to work. Around 9 a.m., he enters the Bible's home. While inside, he decides to order several pornos on pay-per-view. He eats food out of the refrigerator, takes a shower, and then went grocery shopping, selecting items to take with him on his trip, which includes several of the guns. He leaves the home around 3.30 that afternoon, and Lorraine said that he took enough ammo to hold off Coxie's army. I don't know what he was preparing for, but it sounds like it was something big. On January 8th of 1999, Shane and his stolen truck finally break down near the intersection of Road 4430 and Road 40. It's only about 10 minutes from his home in Welsh. The tie rods had busted, so Shane walked across the road and took some wire off of the fence, hoping that he could rig the tie rod back together long enough to get him back to where he was going. That's the thing with Shane. He was quick on his feet and he's very handy thanks to uh, going and helping his dad out with some of these odd jobs. Terry Layton, whose house you could see from where Shane's truck was broken down, decided he was going to call Craig County Sheriff's Department and they sent out Deputy David Hayes. Deputy Hayes had only been with the department for about two days and he was also the only one to arrive on scene at 420 that afternoon. David parks his cruiser so that his front end faces the front end of tr Shane's truck. Hayes steps out of the cruiser operating on the notion that Shane is a fugitive on the run and he is also thought to be armed. So Hayes has his dash mounted shotgun when he exits his cruiser and begins walking towards Shane. He says Shane standing by the driver's door and as he approached Shane reached behind his back pulling something from his waistband of his pants. Shane raises his hand and Hayes says he is staring down the barrel of a pistol. Hayes had pumped his service weapon when Shane had reached from behind his back. 
At 4.20, less than a minute after Hayes arrived on scene, a single shot rang out and Shane Freeman was dead. Kathy and Danny both call Shane's death a murder by cop, even though the shooting was investigated like all shootings are that involve a cop firing his service weapon. And the investigation came to the conclusion that it was self-defense. Why are we talking about this when I introduced you to Ashley and Laura, right? Here's the thing with this. This is a point of origin for the theory of corruption and the lack of investigation in everything that happened with law enforcement in this case. And it all begins right here with the death of Shane Freeman. When Craig County Sheriff's Office decide they don't, they're going to wash their hands of the arson and dead body that is found inside the trailer, they're doing so because the family is still in the process of deciding to file wrongful death suit against Craig County Sheriff's Office. And so there would be a conflict of interest, right? But this is the fuel. This is the accelerant of this whole case is Shane's murder. Because had he not been killed in something that is marked as self-defense, uh, if, if, if you hear the story around town, it, it, you know, Shane was not armed. Shane was ready to go down suicide by cop. There's a lot of things out there saying, trying to explain why Shane may have pulled a gun. But the biggest thing it does is it messes with the investigation of his parents and sister and sister's best friend. Tremendously, this becomes a huge part of this case. On December 29th of 1999, Ashley was turning 16. She had planned a day that was quiet in comparison to others in their sweet 16th birthday parties. She was going to ride to town with her mom, run a few errands, and her best friend Laura was going to go with them. Kathy had made a late breakfast for her family. Danny, at this point, he's in between jobs, and he walks out the door into the cold December morning with nothing more than a cup of coffee that had a pat of butter in it, skipping the biscuits and gravy Kathy had made especially for him. And it sounds like this is who Danny is. He's oblivious to acts of kindness. Like with, with Kathy making biscuits and gravy, especially for him because she knew that's what he liked, and he completely dismissed the whole thing, it's part of this this thing, this attitude with Danny and just how he dealt with life. And and honestly, he does seem like your classic narcissist who likes to gaslight and you know what I mean? So he wasn't exactly the most present, pleasant person to be around. Does not mean that what happened to him was justified. Okay. So anyways... <clears throat> Laura had stayed the night at Ashley's. This was the first night so that she would be there and kind of get the day started. And they spent the morning getting together Ashley's goats, Jack and Jill, because they had a livestock show coming up for FFA and 4-H. Both girls were active in both of the organizations. 
and Laura had her own two animal had her own animals back at home. She showed two pigs and a lamb. She was going to need to get them ready as well. But today was about her best friend turning 16. Laura had already turned 16 and was driving. And for Ashley, that was a freedom that she couldn't wait to have. Once her chores were done, Kathy and the girls headed into town to run a few errands. And But their day got started a little later than they had planned. The thing with Laura is she was allowed to drive. However, she was still not allowed to drive at night. So with them running into town to Vanita and running their errands and doing things, you know, and celebrating just Ashley, just having days, having a day of girl time, right? So their day gets started. They go to the feed store and get some things that Ashley needs for the animals. Then they head over to the Pizza Hut in Vanita for a special birthday dinner and they go and pick up Ashley's cake. It's not one that, you know, they had pre-ordered. They go to the store and they pick one that's already decorated and go with it. For Ashley, it was simple. She was a simple kind of girl. She liked hunting. She was very, what most people call redneck, but I would just call country. She didn't mind getting her hands dirty. She didn't mind taking care of the animals. She was, she was one with the outdoors and that is awesome you know i i'm from an area where there is a lot of uh redneck or cowboys or whatever you want to call them you know there's a different level of that they're on i mean you do you meet certain cliques of people but for for Texans and, and Oklahomans alike, we, we never meet a stranger. By the time it said none, we probably have picked up another friend along the way. We are very friendly people, but we also work very hard for what we have, and we're not afraid to get our hands dirty. A lot of people are. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just explaining this is why Ashley is okay going out and hunting and taking, you know, a deer and, you know, making jerky and deer steaks and things like that. She's very, uh, she's very self-sufficient. Let's just put it at that way. Anyway, so as they're eating dinner, Ashley's boyfriend, Jeremy, he shows up at the pizza hut so he can give her his birthday gift. Now here's a little, this gets a little muddy right here because some people say he did not show up at pizza hut and actually met them at Walmart after the dinner at pizza hut. And others say that he didn't see them until he went to the Freeman's home later that night. However, whatever the case is, eventually, Ashley gets to see her boyfriend, Jeremy. Well, on the way home, it's already starting to get dark, and Kathy and Ashley decide, let's see if we can get Laura to stay another night so she doesn't get in trouble for not driving home. So they, they go by the Bible's residence so that... Laura can run in the house and ask if she can spend the night. She hops out of Kathy's car, runs in outside, and she is like a bull in a china closet. Okay, she's just whirling around, getting all the things she needs as she's talking to her dad. Can I stay the night over at Ashley's again? One more night. It's her birthday. You know, I can't even drive. It's already dark, and we're not even at, you know. Eventually, Jay caves, and he's like, no problem. 
Just remember, you have animals of your own that you need to take, so I need you home by noon. She tells her father, you know, thank you and I love you, and she's out the door. On their way back to the Freeman's home, they do pass Laureen, and they stop for a second so Laura can talk with her mother. Laura fills her in and says that dad said it was okay that she stayed one more night over at the Freeman's. But Lorraine changes the time to be home. She says, don't forget you have a dentist appointment. You need to be home by 8 a.m. Laura is, yes, ma'am, I will be, you know, thank you for letting me stay another night. She's a typical teenage girl. And if you ever have one that gets to stay the night, not once but twice, those kids are the most appreciative people in the entire world. I remember being able to go to a friend's house and call my mom and be like, can I stay another night? And it happened, and I'm like, this is best weekend ever, you know? <laughs> it's just, it's just what girls do. Let's just put it that way. Back at the Freeman's house, Kathy, Ashley, and Laura carry in the things from the, that they collected on their errands, along with Ashley's birthday cake. They celebrate her birthday just with the small group of her parents and Laura and Jeremy. The boyfriend would come over and stay for just a short time, he says he left around 9.30. However, there were other visitors at the Freemans at the same time. And they say that Jeremy didn't leave till later. Whatever the difference is, Jeremy goes home. Ashley and Laura and Kathy and Danny are all alive. And it doesn't seem like there's any kind of danger. Sometime between midnight, December 30th, 1999, or late in the evening, late at night of December 29th, however you like to look at that, and 6 a.m. the morning of December 30th of 1999, the actions that took place inside the Freeman home remain unknown to this day. Several people remember the case and have various theories, and it seems like anyone who could speak of what happened that night and tell us exactly what happened is forever silenced. December 30th, 1999 at 5.40 in the morning, Jack and Diane Bell are leaving for work from their home. And as they're driving, Diane noticed there's a glow about due east just beyond the horizon. Once they reach the driveway of this blazing fire, there's no denying whose home it is. At the entry of the driveway is a sign that says justice for Shane. It is Kathy and Danny's trailer and it is completely engulfed in flames. Jack reverses the truck and he goes to the next closest house, which belongs to Wade and Kim Sherrick and tells them, you know, I'm on my way to work. I got to go to work, but I need you to call 911. Danny and Kathy's trailer's on fire. It's completely on fire. Kim calls 911 and the call comes through about 5.50 a.m. Once the phone, once off the phone, Kim and Wade gather up their children and drive over to the Freemans. Just then, Welch Volunteer Fire Department arrive on scene at 6.10 a.m., 30 minutes after someone noticed the flames, 20 minutes after the 911 call. Now, here's the thing with Volunteer Fire Departments. If you don't have one in your community, the way they work are civilians. They are the ones that volunteer their time. They go through significant amount of training. And nine times out of ten, they're not just hanging around the firehouse. So 
they have you have to wait for them to leave their home, get to the fire station, get in gear, and then come to the scene. So it takes a little bit more time when you're dealing with a volunteer fire department. However, they arrive on scene and this this trailer is just up in flames. And if you don't know anything about trailers, it seems like they're highly flammable because a little bitty fire can turn into a deadly catastrophic fire with just a breath of air. It, I mean, it's just, just gone. Craig County Sheriff's Office, they arrive on scene shortly after the fire department, but the exact time is lost in all of the chaos. At this point, Wade and Kim tell the firefighters, you know, all of the Freeman cars are accounted for. And then we have Lori's Cavalier sitting there too. Wade later says the entire scene, standing there watching this go down, was spooky. And I could see that. Because you don't know, I mean, 5.40 a.m., you would suspect that anybody that was in the home was gone because not many people are up that early. Once the blaze is reduced to nothing but smoldering piles of ash, the firefighters find that the blaze had taken a life. In the home, the body being found is marked at approximately 7.30 to 7.33 a.m. By this time, Craig County Sheriff Deputy Troy Messick is on his way to the McDonald's in Vanita, Lorraine's place of employment. Once they learned that one of the cars at the scene belonged to Laura, they knew they had to go and find her parents. Lorraine was already aware of the fire as her son had called prior to Messick showing up. So when Messick walked in, Lorraine already kind of knew what he was going to say, but he pulls her aside and they speak in private and he tells her, you know, the entire house is a loss and there's a body that's been found in the front bedroom. Lorraine, she knows the Freeman's residence. She's been in it. She knows that front bedroom belongs to Kathy and Danny's room. So she's hopeful that the body that they have found is not that of her daughter. Lorraine calls Jay at, he's at work in an auto parts store about 15 minutes away. He rushes over, picks her up, and they take off. They stop at Celeste and Bill Chandler's home. This is Kathy's mother and stepfather's house. Celeste is there alone. Bill has not has gone to run errands. And Lorraine tells her, we've got to go. You don't understand. Your daughter's trailer is completely destroyed. And there's a body. And we don't know who it is. And Celeste, the shock in her demands that she wait for Bill. But Lorraine's like, you're either getting in the car and going or you're not going. Eventually, though, Celeste does get in the car. And about 9.15 a.m., Jay, Lorraine, and Celeste, they arrive on scene. And they get about halfway up the Freeman driveway before they're stopped and told they can't go any further. And because this is an official crime scene and you know, we don't want you on, on the land contaminating it, right? Onlookers, they begin to gather along the Bibles or along the Freeman's driveway and stand with Jay and Lorraine and Celeste. 
Many said that what they saw was destruction and Craig County Sheriff's officers that were on scene, they're doing nothing but sitting around. Almost proud, like, in the work that they had already accomplished. They were handing over the scene to OSBI, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, and they're following due to the, the reason they're handing this over to OSBI is due to the history between the Freemans and Craig County Sheriff's. There's a conflict of interest right here because if they had investigated it, anything they found, any direction they pointed, no matter right or wrong, they would have been held accountable, questioned, and probably blamed for trying to cover something up. So they were within reason to call in o OSBI. Investigators, they're also waiting on Craig County's medical examiner. She's running late because she was on scene working a deadly car wreck that morning. At 3.30 p.m., Donna Warren arrives on scene, and there's history between Donna and Lorene. Donna had once been Lorene's mother's primary care physician, so the two knew each other really well. Once on scene, Donna disappears into the debris that is left behind from the fire, and she enters what used to be the master bedroom of the home. Laying face down on a waterbed that was pressed to the southern wall were Kathy's, and the way Kathy was kind of laying on this waterbed, she was perpendicular, meaning, you know, she was the width, not the length, and her knees were hanging off the bed and they were bent slightly. Her calves, ankles, and feet had been burned off of her body and lay in the floor below her. The water bed had exploded at some point during the fire and this helped preserve Kathy. Had it not, she would have been almost unrecognizable as her backside was completely charred and burned. But Kathy's face and, and front part of her body were preserved from the water, so they were able to make a positive ID. As Donna is on scene doing what she needs to in order to get the body removed, those gathering beyond the yellow tape begin spinning rumors. One of them is just Danny and his dadgum temper or Danny killed his wife and took the girls. And this is one that the police leaned on heavy in the beginning. Also on scene is the assistant district attorney, Clint Wade, and he is stirring the rumor mill. He is overheard by several residents who were standing there that day saying Danny owed a lot of money in drug debt. So he's also got a point of origin that he wants this case to go, right? He's going to say Danny grew pot, he distributed pot, and this was just a drug deal gone bad, right? <clears throat> well, not really. That's not what happened. But you can see already they're they're not looking at the evidence. They're not looking at, you know, Kathy's body. They are hearing this that Danny has a temper and he finally, you know, had a snap and killed his wife and took off with these girls. 
But then you have other people going, well, he was a drug abuser and he sold drugs and, you know, that's what it was. At 4 p.m., Kathy's body was removed from the scene. And as Donna got a little bit closer for Loring to wave her over, she heads over. And due to their history, the main thing Loring wanted to know was, was that Laura? However, in her mind, she's like, I hope it was Kathy, even though you don't want to hope that. But as a mother, you also don't want it to be your child. Donna tells Lorraine that the woman had a wedding ring on and her hips had showed signs that she had given birth, which means it wasn't Laura. At 5 p.m., OSBI was on scene being led by Agent Steve Nutter. He was calling the scene and having all of the investigators wrap up what they were doing. Standing so far away, you would think that with dust starting to approach that they may be getting ready to call it done for today and come back to keep looking for Danny, Ashley, and Laura. However, Nutter walks over to Dwayne Vansell, Danny's stepbrother, and hands him the search warrant for the property and says, we're done. Same yours. And Lorianne's standing there and she asks for clarification. She's like, are you done for the night or done on the scene and, and you know when are we going to start looking for the girls she's rapid firing questions and Nutter is he replies and I shit you not he says quote it's getting late we'll look for them tomorrow end quote we as true crime nerds as armchair detectives as true crime junkies whatever you want to call yourself we know that with each hour that a child is missing the greater the risk is of not finding them alive. However, Steve Nutter, well, it's five o'clock. It's quitting time. Right? That's how that works? No? No? Okay. So, we, you know, even Laureen and Jay and, and Dwayne, they know we've got to find Danny, Ashley, and Laura. Something's not right here. Well, another rumor begins to float around and... It is of Danny had in fact gone off his rocker and he was laid up in the brush on the backside of the Freeman land with a high powered raffle and he's ready to ambush the Craig County Sheriff's Office and OSBI. So he's out there playing Call of Duty, right? At least that's what the rumor says he's doing. He's got his daughter and his daughter's best friend. He's he's fell off his rocker, he's killed his wife, you know, set his house on fire, and now he's just waiting so he can start picking off all of the men that were involved or a part of his son's murder, right? No, that's not what's going on. Oh my gosh. When Dwayne opens up the search warrant, you know, because they're all standing there with their jaws in the dirt, he noticed it was issued at 2.06 that afternoon, allowing investigators at that point to actually go on scene and begin processing it. The ME didn't arrive until 3.30 p.m. that afternoon. It's now 5 p.m. So they worked for two hours and 54 minutes before going, oh, we're done. Do we see the fucking problem here? This is not enough time to investigate a scene, especially one where we have a dead fucking body 
and three missing people. Like, I really just want to be like, what the hell is going through your brain? This is, this is massive for this community, right? You, you have Craig County Sheriff's Office noticing that there is a conflict of interest in investigating this case. They call an OSBI. OSBI is supposed to be these great top, you know, investigators are supposed to come in and they're supposed to really go through everything with a fine tooth comb. How do you do that in two hours and 54 minutes? I mean, there's some agents out there that are really good at their job, but they're not good enough to sift through an entire home being burned to the ground and a dead body, right? <sighs> Shocked and stunned, Dwayne wants to know what they were going to do about the neighbor who had recently come forward and said he's seen Danny and the girls up by the pond. Nutter says it's too dark and that if he sent his men out there to look, they were liable to get hurt and he wasn't going to allow that. Fine. Dwayne would go up to the pond and then he was going to go on to the cabin that, that his family had had when they were growing up and him and Danny were very fond of it. It was very secluded. Nobody lived there actively year round. It was just a place for their family to get away from the everyday mundane. If Danny needed somewhere to hide, this is going to be where it's at. And, and Dwayne, he knows if he takes law enforcement with him, it's just going to spook Danny and make things worse. So he's just going to go up there by himself and hopefully Danny will start talking. Nutter, he's not budging on any scenario that Laureen, Jay, and Dwayne are handing out as their family is missing. He's done. Crime scene is closed. You, you're now the proprietor of this land. This is, this is baffling. Like wrapping your head around this, it, it generally will <laughs> cause a migraine because there's no words in the English language that you could string together to even remotely explain why this is okay, right? Okay. So Dwayne, he heads towards the cabin. Crime scene's been released. So a few volunteers, they, they offer to start combing the area out behind the house. The, uh, you know, we've got 40 acres to look through. So we've got volunteers on horseback. We've got volunteers on four-wheelers and ATVs. Their headlights are guiding them through the night. And every single one of them are calling out for Danny, Ashley, and Laura. They're picking up where investigators left off. Jay and Laureen had scheduled some interviews with Netter. And that one was at 6.30 that evening. The other was at 7.30. The two were going to be interviewed separately. Although there's very little that either one of them could provide in regards to what happened in the private life of the Freemans. However, they were still brought in for questioning and authorities, they keep asking the same questions, just wording it different. They were sure as shit that this was the work of Danny Freeman. 
So the questions were, who have you seen come in and out of there? Did you ever witness Danny doing drugs? Did you ever see Mr. Freeman with large amounts of cash on hand and no explanation as to where he got it? You know, they're really digging into this. Danny's lost his mind and he's some big time drug dealer, right? He's a small town pot dealer, if, if that. He may have grown some premium stuff, but he wasn't, you know, Escobar or <laughs> he's not peddling millions of dollars worth of drugs. That's just not who he is. He didn't have it in him to do that. I mean, there's just too much work. Lorian and Jay were asking investigators, you know, what are you going to do to find the girls? And the answer was always the same. We're working on it. So as they're firing off these questions about what do you know about Danny in his private life? And, you know, is he a drug dealer? Jay and Lorraine are like, what are you doing to find my daughter? She is not a Freeman. She is a Bible. So Craig County Sheriff's Office, you can be out there looking for my daughter because she is not the conflict of interest, right? They're not happy with the answer they keep getting. We're working on it. We're working on it. Well, they get to talking with Steve Nutter and he tells the Bibles he's in the process of entering the girl's information into NCIC. Later, we're going to learn that Laureen would be the one to actually enter the girl's information into the NCIC as Nutter never did anything to get the girls in there. It was January 1st, 2000. Ashley and Laura had been missing for three days and they're just now getting into this national database they could have we lost time looking for this and Nutter his response when Laureen was coming up to him and she's like you know why didn't you do this and he's like what are you talking about and she's like you didn't have the girls into the NCIC database Nobody's been out there actively looking for my daughter and her friend. You didn't enter the information like you said you did. And Nutter's like, well, no, but, you know, I was about to. He stutters all the way through this, and it pisses me off. You have 16-year-old girls. They are not grown. They're not adults. They are still children. No matter how you look at this, every investigator that arrived on scene should have been looking for them girls. I realized that we found a body. A couple of them could stay back. There's crime scene technicians to process the scene. We need investigators out there utilizing every tool that they have at their disposal in order to find these girls. And he did nothing. Nutter is with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. This is a branch of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He's top of the top. He's creme de la creme for Oklahoma. And he comes in and does a piss poor job and hands you wonton soup with no fucking wonton in it. He's useless. Useless. Laureen... She's done. She's had it. She's tired of being repetitively told, you know, we're working on it. We're working on it. That crime scene's been released. 
And she's about to do something that she's not trained for, that she has no knowledge of how to do it, but by God, she's going to do it anyway. She takes on the task that the investigator should be doing at this moment. You know, she's a mother looking for her baby. And hopefully she will find the last living member of the Freeman family. Lorraine's a manager at McDonald's. She's not, they don't train you to do grid search. They don't train you to collect evidence. They don't train you to find a missing person. But guess what? She's going to do it. And she's going to learn along the way. Her favorite quote, and I love this because I feel like it fits to, you know, true crime podcasters and, and their listeners. When asked, you know, where do I begin? How do I do this? Lorraine's always like, I just do it. I just keep doing it anyway. Regardless of her knowledge, she keeps going. And I find this so appropriate because every case I cover, when I start to look at it, I have no idea what I'm doing, nor do I think I have the perfect layout of, of how to do this case. I don't have a template to go by when I do a case. I start reading and I start looking for answers to questions that I come up during my reading. And it's just what we call a rabbit hole. I mean, I end in a rabbit hole. At the end of the day, I try to throw together a timeline. But there's so much information that just going through a factual timeline and being like, this happened on this day and this, it's not possible. There's so much wrapped up in into these activities that I want to provide you. So I'm striving to sing, you know, to provide you with the best case. I don't know what I'm doing. I just keep doing it anyway. I don't have this goal of hoping to single-handedly solve some unsolved case or cold case. If it happens, that's great. You know, I we put my brain together and we did something. We brought light to something. And if we don't, it's not the end of the world for us. We are not trained. There's no true crime podcast, you know, university go to. You just, you start and you keep going. And I love that about Lorraine. She didn't know where to start. She, you know, probably had the same amount of knowledge as we did from just watching television. And she threw together one of the best damn investigations I think I've ever seen. And for it to come from a civilian, it's even better. On December 31st, 1999, it's the next morning after the fire and all the chaos of what happened. The crime scene is legally theirs. So Lorraine and Jay, they get up early. They're still really kind of reeling from their interrogations the night before. But today they have one goal in mind. Today they're going through what is left of the Freeman home in hopes to find something that will point them in the direction of where the girls are. Like I said, with the crime scene being released, the, that meant that they were free to go and do what they want to. But it also meant that there was nobody stationed there throughout the night, which means whoever did this could have gone back, 
sifted through. If he, she, they left anything behind, they had an opportunity to go in and remove it and effectively leave nothing behind as far uh, as a trail, right? So we, we've got the two problems, but it doesn't matter. They're going to try for it anyways. They pull up to the Freeman's home and in the driveway. Sissy, Ashley's Wattwaller, she's still on scene. And she is heard whimpering as they go and stand in front of the destruction. Sissy walks her way through to where the master bedroom once stood. And the Bibles thought, you know, this is good a place as any to start looking. And they start kind of going through the ashes and the charred, you know, photographs or furniture. There's something somewhere, you know. Not everything was reduced to ash. So as they're looking around, Loring kind of wanders off and Jay notices that Sissy is, she has a knot on her head and it's got dried blood. He thinks, you know, she took uh, the butt of a shotgun, which was the weapon that was used to kill Kathy. The way that they approached this crime scene was they were looking for piles of ashes that could be in the shape of a body that is lying in the fetal position, laying out, whatever. They're looking for something that is like a telltale sign that something could be there. So as Jay is looking down around the master bedroom, he's looking for a human-shaped pile. And he looks down, and what he is staring at, he, he describes it as a bowl of hamburger meat. So he calls Lorraine over, and together they're looking at this, and then they start to see things. There's wire and mesh that had created something inside this bowl of hamburger meat. And then it dawns on them. They're looking at Danny Freeman. It wasn't hard to figure out once they realized that it was Danny that he took a, sh he took a gunshot close range to his face. Because like I said, you, you couldn't see, there's no discernible features there except for that wire mesh that was used to recreate his sinuses. Here's the thing. December 30th, 1999, Laureen asked investigators after discovering the body of Kathy if there was any more bodies in that had perished in the crime, in the fire. She had nine OSBI agents assure her, Jay, Dwayne, Celeste, and Bill that they were 100% sure there wasn't another body in that home. And yet, here they are looking down at the body of Danny. Due to the fact that the waterbed did explode, it helped preserve a little bit of Danny. And as they're looking and kind of following down what would be his body, they notice there are very clear, visible boot marks on his torso. The only person that can be remembered as the two wearing boots the day before was Steve Netter. Steve walked over the top of this body and never once felt like, this isn't solid ground. This is, I don't, what am I stepping on? You know? 
but he didn't. He didn't. He walked right over Danny several times. Donna Warren, the, the medical examiner, she missed him. Investigators on scene, they missed him. Danny Freeman didn't fall off his rocker. He wasn't in the brush holding out like some Call of Duty wannabe PUBG player. He was laying in the floor next to where his wife was killed. Because he himself had been killed. What the hell is going on here? So Jay and Lorraine, they jump in their car and they have to go up the road a little bit in order to get some signal on their cell phone. It's not like today where there it seems like you can pick up signal just about anywhere unless since you're inside this cinder block vault. Then you don't. And it sucks so bad because my office is that way. But anyway, so they go up the road. They crawl Craig County Sheriff's Department. And they tell him, you know, um, we found a body out of the Freemans. And because the scene had been released, people were just flabbergasted that you, you found a body? What body? So they send out Deputy Troy Messick. He's the first one to respond to the call and he's out on scene. And he looks down at what Jay and Lorraine point out to him. And he's in just as much shock as they are. How the hell did somebody miss this? OSBI is supposed to be the experts. And here they are staring down at a very dead body. Dumbfounded, Messick goes and he calls over the radio. And instead of identifying that there is a body on scene at the Freemans, he simply tells dispatch, I can confirm what I was sent out here to look at. And that's all it took. In the front yard, as Messick is radioing back to dispatch, Jay notices that there's a couple cats and they're playing around with something. And they had saw them walking up to the, to the property, but didn't think anything of it. But as Jay got closer to these cats and seeing what they're fighting over, he sees that it's part of Danny's jaw and it still has two of his front teeth attached. Dwayne had finally come down from the cabin and when he saw Jay and Lorraine waving him over, he had that feeling that he knew what he was walking into. Dwayne said, quote, Danny told me where to look if something happened to him. Well, it did, didn't it? End quote. It wasn't long before Craig County Sheriff's Office returned to the scene and began to tape off the area once again. The difference is that Lorraine, Jay, and Dwayne would be on the other side of the tape this time. Once this was done, Craig County Sheriff's Office called OSBI and then they stood around waiting for their arrival. OSBI, they show up with Netter leading about 10 to 12 agents. And they tell the Bibles about how this is going to go, which is basically a repeat of what they did before. And Lorraine, she's not having any of it. She says, oh, no, it won't be. I ain't leaving here today, boys. You can tie your tape to my mirror of my vehicle, but we're moving. And I'm not going to be in your back pocket today. I'm going to be in your front pocket. 
we're not leaving here until we know this place has been searched thoroughly this time. She stands her ground. And there wasn't much they could do as the scene had been released the day before. Well, here comes Donna Warren, the ME. She arrives late again, dealing with another fatal car wreck. And she says, what the hell happened here? Who found the body? And Messick, he, he subtly points out Lorraine. And Donna's like, this is bad. This is so bad. So where Danny was found, he was found at the bottom of the right corner of the waterbed. And there was no gun within reach. So they immediately could rule out the whole murder-suicide. Still trying to pin things on Danny, even though he didn't do it. Laureen, Jay, and about 150 volunteers from Welsh, they begin to process this scene. Nearly 25 trained officers and agents stand along the sidelines watching as Laureen begins handing out directions. The local funeral home is out there as well, and they've set up a tent 50 feet away from the trailer, and that is where they're handing out sandwiches, sandwiches and drinks to all the volunteers. The volunteers decide to set up like this, like conveyor-like line down the driveway of the Freemans, and they are sifting through scoop after scoop after scoop of the ashes coming from the trailer. They're looking for anything, anything, anything that pops up, they say something, it gets tagged. Lorraine, as she's working and she's covered in all this ash, she overhears one of the agents on the side saying she's destroying the crime scene. Well, covered in ash and pissed off that she's out there doing their job, she turns around and barks at them and says, it can't be messed up any worse than you did yesterday. So if you're going to be a part of this, you're just going to have to do it our way. Jay and Dwayne, they go out and they set up a two-man command center in the front yard. This is where they organize a grid search of the 40-acre property. Let me just say this. For them to do this grid search, this is a this is probably one of the most utilized tools when it comes to crime scenes is to set up a grid. Okay. And everybody gets a quadrant and you look in your quadrant and you mark things that are within it that could pertain to the case. If you question whether or not it could pertain to the case, you put a marker down. Well, this is how Jay and Dwayne are setting up their command center and grid search. They have some people who came horseback, which helps tremendously. They had people who had come with their canoes ready to get into the creek and help search there. These volunteers, they searched through the brush. It scraped their skin. But the determination that they had to help find these girls gave them the tolerance to not feel these small pinches and scrapes from the branches and bushes as they made their way through the landscape. A regular visitor of the Freeman's home noticed something big that was missing. Hundreds of arrowheads, some of them in box cases, along with several buckets that contained even more arrowheads and tomahawks were missing. 
This was something that Danny did daily in, in, in between his jobs. He would go out on the land, he would tend to his marijuana, and he would be looking for Indian artifacts. It's something he truly enjoyed. And in his area, they were known for like the Cherokee Indians. And so there's a lot of stone-made tools just waiting to be unearthed. And Danny found solace in this. This was his therapy. This helped him go th get through whatever mentally he was going through for that day or that time. You know, in the beginning, I said that, you know, hopefully something would change when he was sent to the court-ordered therapy sessions. And I still wish there was some tools he utilized. But learning that this was a hobby of Danny's was... It was, you know, sugar to the sweet, to the sour of this whole thing. He had an ability and he was, he was doing the best he could to maintain it. What was left of the Freeman home was ripped apart by Lorraine and the volunteers. In Ashley's room that used to be Shane's, Lorraine found, found Laura's purse and inside was her ID and all of her Christmas cash that totaled about $200. Also in the room was a partially burned pajama top of Laura's. She had either gotten she had either not gotten ready for bed or whoever did this made her change out of her pajamas. So did the fire start before she had a chance to prepare for bed or after? Was she forced to change her clothing? Nailing down when the fire began would help them know exactly how long the girls have been missing. It was a key factor in this investigation, and the only thing that was for sure is those trained to do what the Bibles and the volunteers were doing were standing by and watching, not willing to find the answers that were looming in the air. What happened that late night into early morning at the Freeman's house, and where were Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible? Major furniture that was still standing in the destruction of the Freeman home was tore apart, hoping to find something, anything that would tell them not only what happened that night, but where the girls had gone. Craig County Sheriff's Department literally washed their hands of this case based on the last name of those who owned the trailer, but never tried to help find the one teenager that didn't share that last name. Instead, it was left to her parents to start somewhere. Kathy was shot at close range in the back of her head where her body fell to the waterbed. Danny was shot in the face at close range and he fell close to his wife. The only thing identifying Danny's body was the wire and mesh that was used to construct his sinuses after the accident. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we sift through this chaotic destruction that is the Freeman Bible case. Join me next week as we get our hands even dirtier looking at the pieces of this case and putting together the puzzle that is 21 years old. As always, I leave you with one last line. 
There's wisdom to be gained from not cutting corners. Much love, the true crime librarian.